Thank you all for the opportunity to come and be with you. Um, Steve made mention of the relationship that uh, my wife and I have had with John and his family from long ago. And when I say his family, I really mean his parents and his younger brother. I've met his wife, but really have not had an opportunity to get to know her well. And uh, the, the, they were kind enough to open their home to us and let us stay there last night. And uh, as we look at the pictures of their family, uh, there's even a greater desire to get to know them. I have long uh, respected and appreciated John and our first uh, years getting acquainted were when he was still in school as an undergraduate student. He's a very gifted guy, as you are discovering. Um, I was thinking this morning, his entire family, well, at least his mom and his brother and he are musical. I, I think his dad can sing. I'm not sure if his dad plays an instrument, but uh, our church back in South Carolina was blessed through their ministry in many different ways, many, many different ways through the years. And I'm so thankful just to see firsthand and be here. My wife, Kristen, is seated here in the second row uh, toward the end. And we just came out of uh, three days of a really blessed time over uh, near Eager, Arizona at Grandview Camp. We were invited to lead a, a couple's retreat and the high mountains there, almost 8,500 feet. It was very cold at night. So thank you for turning the heat up for us a little bit upon a return. We've talked to enough of you all, the larger Phoenix area saying, oh, this is nothing. You know, come back in 30 days or 60 days. And I I think, no, I'll, I'll wait until that heat passes and then return. Phoenix is largely, uh, or this whole area really, is largely unknown to us. So um, forgive us, bear patiently with us if you try to tell us where you're you know, from or, or where you currently live or work or whatnot. And we stare at you with you know, kind of a blank face. Um, we've driven from one side uh, to the other side here. And so now I have a good sense of, of where a few things are. But it's still a kind of a first time visit all the way around. So thank you for your hospitality to us. Um, I want to invite you to open your Bible this morning to Romans 5. The scripture reading earlier was from Romans 3. In many ways, I wish we had time to read the first four chapters as a gateway into chapter 5. And I'm going to do my best to summarize some things. At our church in uh, Riverton, we are making our way through the book of Romans right now. I've, in all my years of ministry, I've never actually preached through this book, though it is one of my favorites. And I'm sure for many of you, it is also a favorite. And if you're not well acquainted with Romans, you should be. There probably is no more succinct expression and deeper expression of the gospel in all of its richness than this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. And the context, which I wish I had time to tell you about, is so similar to our particular day. Nero was emperor, but the Roman Empire really was on the, on the front side of their big decline. And the culture was just being ravaged by all kinds of, of craziness, from political to moral insanity, if you will. And it was not an easy time for the saints in the church at Rome to make their living, whether in business or family or even as far as religion. It was a very challenging time. And so Paul, who had long desired to be with these people, to meet them, that he could actually, as he says it, give you a gift, which, which is Jesus Christ and his gospel. 
he writes a letter to them and pours out his soul to them. And he begins that letter, and for the first uh, two and a half chapters, deep into chapter three, he actually expresses that the righteousness of God is being presently revealed in wrath. Now, that's not a message that any of us wants to hear, really, but you've got to understand what is at stake in your life for the life to come when it comes to the gospel. And so he expresses things to the Romans and in chapters 1 through 3 tells all of us, not just them, that we've not only come short of the glory of God, but in chapter 1 verse 23 says we're actually guilty of exchanging the glory of God for the created things. Whether it be humans like, like ourselves, we begin to worship ourselves or we actually begin to worship idols or images, things that resemble the mortal created things. We've traded away the glory of God for a much lesser glory, if you can even use the term glory for it. Paul establishes the case that there is not one person among us who is inherently or personally or perfectly righteous and you know that perfect righteousness is absolutely necessary to enter the presence of God one day and to dwell with Him forever. And from the most religious of us to the most non-religious, we are unrighteous. And because of that unrighteousness, Paul actually says that we are all under God's wrath. God's wrath is already being poured out in, in a small way. It's difficult for us sometimes to recognize it, but a lot of the, the moral decline that we're experiencing right now, and you can go back to Romans 1 and read some of the specifics there. And it's not just a couple of, of, of immoral vices. I mean, there's a long vice list there. That is a demonstration that, that God, as an expression of His wrath, which is His righteous anger against our sin, is actually giving us over to those sinful desires. It's a fearful place to be in. Some of you have been there personally. And that's where Paul actually touches on the fact that we were all, at least at one time, under sin, under its control, enslaved to it, in bondage, without capacity to actually choose things that were good and righteous in a way that would honor God. But then, in chapter 3, Paul takes a, a most remarkable turn, and he puts before us uh, an alternative to the fact that all are under wrath, all have come short of the glory of God, all are unrighteous. And, and it leaves us saying, well, if we have to have righteousness and be in God's presence, what will we do? And Paul says, oh, here's the good news of the gospel. After hearing the bad news of wrath and unrighteousness, the good news is this. There is a righteousness available to sinful people like you and me, but it is a righteousness which you uh, achieve or receive by faith. Not by your performance, not by your religious zeal, not by commitments that you could make to God or, or some act of sacrifice that would impress Him. No, it's a righteousness which is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And so it's faith in Jesus, who He is. Not faith in ourselves as to who we might be or even might become. It's faith in what He has done for us, not faith in our works. And to help us understand what that faith looks like, Paul then in chapter 4 takes a portion of that chapter to highlight the faith of Abraham and concludes, look, I asked you to open to Romans 5, but you're really close, so just back up a paragraph to verses 22 through 24. 
And he, he concludes that little portion of, of, of putting Abraham's faith before us by saying his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And that word counted is an accounting term. He got credit for something. It's not credit for anything he did. It's not credit for any sacrifice he offered, for any religious work that he engaged in. No, just his his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, Paul says, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is where the gospel begins to get so rich for us and so intensely personal. And now we come to chapter 5 and and we want to look at the first 11 verses this morning. So follow along as I read this portion of God's word. Therefore, that is tied right back to verses 23, 24, 25. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one person will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Now, Let's go back to verse 1 and walk our way through it and just savor the richness of this gospel truth for us. There's a declaration of righteousness that Paul is talking about. The theological term, the biblical term, is justification. Now, it is a legal term. It has to do with a court of law and God himself is judge and sinful, guilty like people like us are ushered into his presence, held accountable before him. That's part of what Paul has been saying. But then something marvelous happens to those like Abraham who put their faith in Jesus Christ. God, as judge of the universe, makes a legal declaration over those people who by faith are trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ for their salvation. And the declaration of this is this. Righteous, you who were unrighteous, coming short of the glory of God, under wrath, under condemnation, are legally declared once and for all to be perfectly righteous in God's eyes for Christ's sake. What a gift. What a declaration. Now, de- now justification is different from sanctification. 
I suspect you've heard this uh, many, many times. And, and I, I don't know your previous pastor, but apparently established a, a great tradition. John has taken the gospel baton and run faithfully with it. This is all through the scriptures for us, isn't it? So justification, though, is different from sanctification. That's a process. And some days are better than others. The general trajectory is upward by God's grace. But you know, you can't be more justified tomorrow than you are today. You can't be less justified today than you were yesterday. It's a, it's a settled reality for those whose faith is in Jesus Christ. God makes this declaration over us. And Paul says, look at verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That declaration of righteousness over us results in peace. We have peace with God. But, but this peace, we need to understand it because some of you would say, but I don't feel like God is at peace with me. Like, as a matter of fact, I've been struggling a lot lately and there's no way God can be happy with the way I'm living. Careful, because Paul's not actually talking about how you or I feel at any given moment. There's a place for that. The peace, of, uh, the peace that passes all understanding, Scripture says, shall keep your hearts and minds. So, so there's, a, there's a right place for feelings of peace. But Paul's not really talking about what you or I would feel inside of our hearts at any given moment. No, he's actually talking uh, about a, a, a circumstance, uh, an outward situation that has changed, and again, it's almost like it's a legal reality, regardless of how you or I feel. Because of what Jesus did, God himself has laid down the weapons of his war, never to take them up again in hostility against us. He's at peace with us. He's at peace with you if your faith is in him. So Paul is actually stating that the outward situation has changed. Changed from what, you would say? From wrath. That's the first two and a half chapters. Because of our sin, we were under wrath. We were destined for wrath. Totally different circumstance is in place. During the summers of my college years, I worked at a, and this is a long time ago now, I worked at a wilderness camp for troubled youth. And I grew up in South Carolina, and the, the, the program itself was based out of North Georgia and then up into uh, the, the Southern Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. And one of my favorite spots in all the world is the Shining Rock Wilderness Area. And if you ever have a chance to go there, you should. And it's some of the highlands of the, of the Appalachians. Now, out west, an elevation that I'm about to describe to you is almost laughable, but please don't laugh uh, because in Greenville, the city I grew up, I mean, we were below a thousand feet of elevation and, and these mountains, softer, gentler, greener uh, in some ways, rose to just over 6,000 feet. So that's quite an elevation gain. And many of the youth we worked with came from the flatlands of Mississippi. So these mountains were enormous to them. And we took them into this wilderness area for a week of backpacking. And then the second week of the wilderness program included some introductory whitewater canoeing and a little bit of rock climbing and whatnot there. But that first week was grueling. And, and in the same way that many of you have had to adjust to elevation gains uh, at certain times, and you know what it's like to just be higher than you've been living and the stress and strain that's on your body, and then you throw in a couple of other variables that could make for a really fearful, if, if not intense time, like the weather, and you have the makings of memorable trips. Well, summers in the, in the south, east, um, 
thunderstorms are just commonplace. And even in those mountains, uh, though we were prepared for them and expected them, you never could be really fully prepared for the intensity of some of those. And in that week of hiking, there was always one, there were a couple of sections of trail that actually just took us over the ridge tops. Um, and some of those were fully exposed. There was no, no forest growth around us. Others were down in the trees, but y y there were stretches where there really was no place to go if you got caught. And on Thursday afternoons, we were typically eating lunch in this beautiful little saddle and then spent the three hours or four hours, depending on our group and the speed and all that, hiking this ridge top up to one of the higher elevations for one of my favorite camping spots uh, in that whole wilderness area. But that particular stretch from lunch to supper, the three or four hours it took, was actually one of the, the steeper sided uh, um, ridge tops where once you were in the middle of it, you could either go forward or you could go back, but you could not go down over the side, not without risking uh, your life. And that's not an exaggeration. And on one particular afternoon, I was with my group. We typically had four or five teenagers uh, in, in uh, each of our groups. And I had my guys with me and you could hear it coming from the west. And the clouds got darker and the wind was picking up and the rumbling got closer and closer. And right, I, my memory is that we were almost dead center in that long stretch of trail it just broke loose on us. And I mean, it was the kind of storm where the flash and the roar of thunder are simultaneous. And you know, I, we had been trained in all the safety techniques, you know, and what you're supposed to do. And if the hair on the back of your neck stands up, then you should, you know, get in this squatted down position, try not to touch the ground with your hands and, you know, let the rubber soles of your boots be a little bit of insulation. But you know, when you're in the middle of a storm like that, you're just like quivering and shaking and crying out to God saying, please don't strike me dead. I think it's going to happen at any moment. It was just terrifying. And it felt like that storm lasted forever. I really have no idea to tell you how long that particular event lasted, but I, thought that, I felt like the storm moved over us and just stopped. And we just kept walking. And my guys are looking around like, Danny, what do we do? And I'm like, I mean, we can either go back or we can stand still or we can go forward. But, you know, none of those seems like a really good alternative. And, and we just kept plodding along and you didn't have those just, horrific flashbang events and you kind of like just close your eyes and I'm thinking Lord you know these, these guys some of them they, they don't have a relationship with you they're not Christians and if this is day we're all going to die like just don't let us and I'm praying all kinds of crazy things at that moment and, and you know eventually the storm did move off and as is also common uh, in those mountains when those storms move off to the east and, and it draws all of that hot humid air uh, because that's what storms feed on, right? It draws all that out of the mountain. And then the, the late afternoon became one of the most beautiful and calm uh, afternoons of the summer. It was a change in circumstance. And what Paul is saying is, because of Jesus, the wrath of God has moved off. And peace has come. And whether you feel like it or not, God has said, we're at peace because of Jesus. And that's the next phrase, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have peace with God today through your performance. You don't have peace with God through your sincerity. 
You don't have peace with God through any other means. It's only through our Lord Jesus. What a peace it is. So that's big point number one in this passage. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is a, there is a, a change of circumstances, and it's a circumstance of peace. Now look at verse 2. Because now he's going to build on this. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And now Paul is using language that makes us think, well, there's not only a circumstance of peace, but there's a state or a realm, if you will, of grace. Not, not a realm of performance-based standing or acceptance. Think about how many areas of your life uh, really do come down to your performance. It started when you first entered school, and that's when you became aware, like, there are smart kids in this class, and then there are kids like me. And, and they know more and do better, and they get a higher score, right? And, and you suddenly start feeling a little pressure. Some of you felt it early on in athletics, and you were gifted with ordinary or below average athletic ability. And even, even in the schoolyard or the, you know, the basketball court down the road, when you're all choosing up sides and you line up there and you know, everybody else gets picked first because they perform better. And it's painful. And, and sometimes you work harder and you can make an, an advance and sometimes you come to, the grips, or come to grips with the fact that God just didn't give you the skills. And so you find other stuff to do. You quit showing up you know, for the pickup basketball games because you're, you're just kind of tired of suffering. And you know that your performance is not what it ought to be. Then you get your first job. And uh, somewhere along the line, if, at least if, depending on where you work, your manager says, hey, we need to do a performance review. And you're like, what? I'm just making french fries. And then he shares some things. Or she says, you know, we could use more improvement here. Or you're like, wow, who knew? Who knew there's so much pressure to make french fries? Much of life is ordered on the basis of our performance. And to a certain extent, they should be. I'm not advocating for, you know, we're all equal and everybody gets a, you know, participation trophy and value and... Um, there, there's a place for that, but not in the gospel. No, acceptance with God is not actually tied to how you and I perform. It really is all of grace. Paul says this grace in which we stand. Now, he's using grace in a slightly different nuance, as one author notes, uh, den denoting that the manner in which God acts or the gift, different from the manner in which God acts or the gift that he gives. No, he's actually talking about a state into which God's redeeming work transfers the believer. It's like God gave you citizenship in the state of grace. But beyond that, even, it's the realm in which grace reigns. So whereas this peace we enjoy with God is in stark contrast to the wrath we were under, so grace stands in strong contrast to the law. 
The law that you could never keep perfectly, the law that was a perpetual frustration to you, God's removed you from that realm. And not to say that, you know, the Ten Commandments don't matter anymore, but it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't bring the same weight against you and perpetual accusation. He transfers you to the state of grace and says, because I've justified you, because I've given you the gift of eternal life, now you need to obey me and, and live like one of my children, because you really are. A realm of God's grace. Notice again what the text says as we dig deeper into verse 2 into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, this grace that we're enjoying from God is actually producing hope for future glory. Paul says, we now rejoice in hope. Now, biblical hope is different from hope as most of us use that term or think of it day in and day out. I hope that it will not be 110 degrees next week. That's a reasonable hope. Might even be a well-founded hope, but it's not a hope that you are absolutely certain of. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that we will receive good because God said so. It's not a, I hope, I hope God will take me to heaven one day. I hope God really will bless me for Christ's sake as he says. No, it's a confident expectation. God said it, I believe it, we're going to find it. And that's what Paul is getting at here. We've been, we have been brought into this realm of grace, and so it produces this rejoicing, even boasting, if you will, will, that there is still better stuff to come, and in particular, the glory of God. Now think about where we will be for a moment. We're living in the confident expectation that we will experience God's glory. That's His glory personally as we stand in His presence and we see Him as He is. What an awesome moment that will be. But do you know something, my friend, if I can insert this, if you're not in right relationship with God, that will be the worst moment of your existence because you are not prepared to be in the presence of this glorious God apart from Jesus Christ. And his righteousness. But for those who know them, uh, know him, uh, those saints like Paul is writing to here, that will be an astonishing moment. We will see God in his glory. But Romans also says, if we could read all the way to chapter 8, where Paul writes that we personally will be glorified with Christ and share in that glory. So it's not just like this wow moment of look at God in his glory, but it will also include look at us. What God has done, we're finally perfect in every way, greater uh, in that perfection than we could ever fathom. We're sharers in his glory. And this is the hope that Paul is speaking of here in this particular verse. Now notice next in verse three. I want to move quickly here. More than that. It's like, really? Like, yeah, exactly. Who, who said that? You got it. Oh, man. Thank you. Praise God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that's kind of where the, the needle scratches across the vinyl. Like, what? Who rejoices in suffering? I mean, none of us woke up this morning and say, you know, as a part of our morning prayers, oh, Lord, I, I pray that you have a portion of suffering prepared for me today that would just do marvelous things. No, some of us woke up praying for relief from suffering. And, and that's okay. That's, that's, that's good. But there's something quite remarkable here that in this state of grace and the hope of future glory actually informs 
us in our present sufferings. And here it comes. You need to, you need to read the full explanation. So what, what's Paul going to say here? We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces more hope. I inserted the word more, but this is hope of the same kind we were just looking at, but, it, but it's, of a, it's of a different focus. So we rejoice in our sufferings. You say, does he have a particular suffering in mind? No, he's using a general word. So that would include any state of physical or mental or social or economic adversity. We're talking about pressure or distress of all kinds. And you say, as I say, how can suffering like what we are experiencing in this life be a good thing? Let alone produce rejoicing or a kind of boasting. Well, he says suffering produces uh, a chain of results First of all, endurance. That's the power to withstand hardship or stress. Something all of us are in need of. Well, he doesn't stop there, though, does he? He says it also produces character. That's the quality of, of being proven to be reliable. And two, two, two aspects of that that I think are happening here. One, that God is proving his dependability to us in the midst of our suffering, but he's also growing our faith and the strength of, of our faith so that we are actually becoming more reliable servants for him. And all of that culminates in this hope, confident expectation for good. Now, some of you may say, man, I gotta think about that a little bit. You know what? Every one of you understands it. Say, what do you mean? Yeah. Um, you understand exactly what Paul is writing about here. Some of you actually pay big bucks for someone else to put you under a similar kind of pressure and stress because it has been demonstrated that there are powerful, personal, long-term benefits for this kind of suffering. It's called a gym membership. <laughs> and you are paying good money to suffer if truth be told. And you not only pay good money for the pain, but you rejoice as you see the results. And then you turn around and you boast to your friends. And some of you will go back to that CrossFit gym or Zumba class or Wolverine workout or whatever it is tomorrow, man, tomorrow morning. You will kill yourself. And Tuesday morning, you will wake up so sore. You can hardly get out of bed. But as you limp back into the kitchen with your family or you resume the, the, the work role that day and you hobble into that workspace, you're sharing with your friends and you're like oh I can hardly move and they're like what happened and you say I went to the gym <laughs> and you will glory in that and not just because it's impressive to them but you you actually have come to believe that placing yourself under that pressure three days a week five days a week six days a week will actually result in future good and you don't see it on day one Typically, often you don't even see it for 30, 60, 90 days. But one, one day, and that's why some of you have even done those before and after shots, and you keep looking at the before picture going, oh, oh, it's still the same, it's still the same. But sooner or later, if you're faithful in that and you submit yourself to the suffering, stuff changes. And your strength goes up and your endurance expands and your health increases because of suffering. Now, if we recognize those benefits physically, how much more, to use Paul's very words here, how much more 
Will God use even the present day suffering? Doesn't that make you hopeful? Because I'm telling you, I'll bet if we went person to person all the way around the room and, and we were really honest with one another, there's not one person here who goes, oh, my life is good. I can't think of one thing that I would change today, one improvement I would make, one way that my life could possibly be better. As a matter of fact, we would all probably start to tell stories of pain and loss and suffering. It's true in our little church. And my heart aches and it breaks. It's true in my family. And it's true in yours. But when you come by faith through Jesus Christ alone, into this circumstance of peace that God works, and then you receive this, this citizenship in the state of grace, he begins to redeem even the suffering of this life. And, and suffering is a consequence of our sin, ultimately, right? I mean, Adam and Eve kicked it off, and every generation since has run with that baton of rebellion and sin trying to run away from God. And in grace, he continues to track us down and say, no, come back to me. Come back here. Come back here. And, and your death and your disease and your sorrow and your heartache is actually a consequence of your sin, but I'm good enough and powerful enough and sovereign enough to turn that in a redemptive way. And I'm going to use all of that for future glory. And I say, thank you, Lord. My dear mother went to be with Jesus a little over 23 years ago. And I miss her on Mother's Day. And some of you are missing loved ones today too. But what comfort it is to know she's with Jesus. Because she, as a young girl, well, long before I came along, believed this very gospel. And to her dying day, would tell anybody, but because we were close to her, my faith is in Jesus. I'm trusting his life, his death, his resurrection for my own future resurrection. And I have confidence as I think through this passage, even with, with respect to her, that her suffering through those last two years of her life as she battled cancer wasn't wasted. But the Lord was actually using that suffering to grow her endurance and character and ultimately her hope. That's a very different path and trajectory than so many of our friends and family members who do not know Jesus in a saving way, who do not understand this gospel. Do you know Jesus in that way? Do you understand the gospel of his righteousness and his grace? Do you? Well, there's more. Paul goes on in verse five, to say hope does not put us to shame. That means you, there's no future day coming. There's no possibility that a future day is coming where you go, I trusted Jesus and this is what I got. That's all I can say about that right now. Unless we want to go three hours and my wife will not permit me to do that. So look at verse five. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So a circumstance of peace where there was once wrath, a state of grace where there was once the oppression of, of God's law that just told us repeatedly, you're not good enough, you're not righteous enough. And, and now he, he talks about the love of God being poured out. First of all, through the Holy Spirit. 
And, and it's, it's terminology, as Paul uses it out, that, as Paul uses it, that expresses a, a pouring out that's extravagant. I mean, it's like a flooding of this love that just sweeps over your life, your soul. The Holy Spirit is the means of that flooding love. And I wish we could take a little more time there, but let's, let's go on to the, and, and dig into this text, though, this particular phrase. The backdrop of God's love, though, that, that He pours out is our own weakness and sinfulness and enmity. Those are three key words, but it's, it's all going to be, uh, that, that backdrop stands behind this to make the expression of God's love all the more dramatic, and that is the death of Christ. You see, God pours it out through the Holy Spirit, but the specific love that he's referring to is what Christ did for us on the cross. And so you see it there in the text, four, verse six, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Look at verse eight, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Think about those three particular characteristics of our past and what a dark and horrific backdrop it really is. The word weak, when, when Paul says while we were still weak, he's not, he's not referring to physical strength. He's actually referring to moral strength. And he's, he's referring to that condition before Christ when we really did not have the moral capacity to choose God, to do what was right for his honor and glory. That doesn't mean we were like bad in every way at every second of every day of our lives, but we really did not have the capacity we sometimes thought we could. And, and many people say this at points. Well, I'm not that bad of a person, right? And we say that because we can always find someone else to compare ourselves to who's at least a little worse than we are. But God's not comparing us one to another. He's not grading your morality on a scale. There's not A plus morality and D minus morality, and as long as you're within that scale, you know, you're not in the F category. No, everybody gets an F. That's part of what he means back in chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's talking about moral strength, and it's true because we were enslaved to our sinful desires. And then he uses the term sinners, and that has reference to those who are disobedient to God's commands and neglectful of, of duties toward him. And the third term is while we were enemies, hostile, haters of God. We might have put on a good show, and you see all kinds of groups, from the religious to the non-religious, where they're at least, you know, polite about it, and some, you know, feign great uh, religious piety or whatnot, but in our hearts, we, we hate God, because He demands perfect righteousness that we can't give Him. And He calls us to put all of our faith in Jesus, and not in anything we have done. And that goes against, you know, my natural personality, because I want to contribute something. And God says, No. All your righteousness are like filthy rags. Hostile. While we were in that condition, look again at verse 6, Christ died. Verse 8, Christ died. Verse 10, reconciled to God by the death of His Son. There's a, there's a newer hymn that's been written that we have been learning at our church. Some of you would know it well, I'm sure. I, I think it's Chris Tomlin uh, who wrote it, but uh, there's a beautiful line there uh, in it that captures so much of just the hope and power of the gospel. Uh, but he, he's written these lines. There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. 
There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide. I feel like that captures some of this outpouring of the love of God in Christ. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide, where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down. And if you know the hymn, do you know what the, the next three words are? At the cross. At the cross is where this love comes flooding over sinners like us. And now Paul not only shows us that this is the visible expression of God's love, the, the death of Christ, but now notice the effect of God's love. And the, and the phrase much more appears twice, and then the word more appears a third time. Much more, verse 9, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Much more, verse 10, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? And, and then finally, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. And, and that's the point where I just have to like put, put Romans down and say, uh, okay, I, wow, really? And that's not even the end of Romans. <laughs> and while you and I might measure God's love for us in terms of present health, or our possessions, or the financial security we have, God measures the expanse of his love, the volume of it, the power of it, in terms of the death of Christ. Some of you struggle today with whether or not God really loves you. And you know what he would do to answer that? What he is doing right here? He's not saying, look at your bank account, look at your last physical exam and the blood work and, and, and survey all those circumstances of life. No, he would actually say, look at the cross. Because while you were weak, my son died. While you were disobedient and rebellious, he died. While you were my enemy, he died. Who does that? That's what Paul is saying. Like, uh, a person might, might die for a really good person. But this God loves sinners like us so much that he sent his one-of-a-kind son into the world to die. How can we question his love for us? Could, could God give anything more generously? Is, is there something of greater value in all the universe than Jesus himself? The answer is no. He gave what was most precious and valuable and necessary for you and me. His love really is like a flood. A circumstance of peace when it was all wrath, a state of grace when it was the heavy burden of law, an outpouring of love when we were hostile toward him, and all of that results in our present joy, our hope of future glory, of hope even in the midst of present suffering and the great reality that we can stand today knowing we are reconciled to the God against whom we rebelled and sinned. Happy Mother's Day.
happy every day. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord God, we recognize at this moment that the only pathway to eternal peace winds its way up a dark and difficult road to a place called Calvary. And while we should tread that road with our own cross strapped to our shoulders and our own sins being judged and condemned, Calvary is where you crucified your son to deliver us. And because of him, we are forgiven everything and now sheltered in peace, dwelling in a realm of grace that we could never create for ourselves and immersed, just swimming in an eternal, unending love. And the joy of our hearts is that it's not a limited space, but every sinner who comes to this cross will find that same peace and grace and love. Oh, how we pray that for one or ten or a dozen more who might be here today who've never experienced this peace and grace and love, that this would be the day where they could say goodbye to the slavery and bondage of sin, to the fear of a coming death, of judgment, of wrath, and step into this realm knowing that there is peace for them and grace and love. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you suffered what we deserved. You drank the cup of our God's wrath to the very dregs and not one drop is left for your people now. You bled that for our sins that we might know grace and you poured out your life that we might know this love. Thank you. Thank you. So let this powerful reality, this gospel truth, continue its mighty work saving and transforming, of protecting and keeping, of giving us the proper perspective even on our present sufferings and let the hope of that every one of us holds in our hearts grow. And all of it, we pray, for your glory, for our joy, for Jesus' sake. Amen.